Kentucky, home of such things as bluegrass, the wildcats, the derby, and the colonel and his fried chicken. But we forgot to mention one more thing, its favorite sons, the Kentucky Headhunters. They've won awards ranging from the CMAs, the ACMs, the AMAs, and even the Grammys. And on this episode, founding member Greg Martin dials up Coal Mountain and joins us here at Pete's Castle for the show we titled Kentucky Fried Pickin'. Let's go, Cal. And broadcasting once again from the northeast tower of Pete's Castle for the Customer's King in downtown beautiful South Coal Mountain. This is Coal Mountain Cal along with my brother and partner in crime, Christopher Cheeto Cheatham, along with producer Steve the Good Dr. Thomason. And we are bringing you once again another stellar episode of The Crossing, where the music meets the memories. Chris... How's that pollen treating you? It's been doing really well. I keep, I, I, I mean, I, I just keep taking the medication, and it keeps me lightheaded. So there's no telling what kind of tangents I may go on this evening. You got a good uh, excuse with anyway. our with our guest tonight. But can we talk about Coal Mountain and the destruction that they're doing in Coal Mountain? I it's mean, like they're, they're, they're pushing us further and further south. I mean, it's, eventually it's going to be taking over Coal Mountain. But anyway, let's get on with this because once again we have. Royalty with us. Oh, yeah, if we you don't just, mind me we've saying the seven that. Again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Let me. So, folks, probably about, I think it was 1969, my daddy, your daddy, was probably strolling through, rolling through Coal Mountain, tuning that Phil Cole dial to <laughs> 590 WPLO, I think, back in the day, or maybe even on Saturday night. WSM 650, and they would hear this from Brother Bill Monroe. Walk softly on this heart of my blood. Don't treat it mean and so unkind. Let it rest in peace and quiet. Walk softly on this heart of mine. Now, Chris, fast forward to 1989. Yeah, same song, a little different version. I've got a Telecaster banging my stereo Pioneer 6x9s out of the window with a little something kind of like this. Oh. 
historians is the Kentucky Headhunters doing the old bluegrass version. Bill Monroe walks softly on his heart of mind, which, Chris, leads us to our special guest tonight of the Kentucky Headhunters, Brother Greg Martin. Greg, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing great. How are you doing, gentlemen? Are y'all doing well? Oh, we're just fighting off this COVID left and right and the pollen, and we're just hanging in there. Well, the COVID hasn't been fun. I I danced with it back in November for a couple of weeks, and uh, I made it through. It, it kicked my butt a little bit. Not bad, but uh, I stayed quarantined like a good good guy, and uh, as soon as I got out of the quarantine, I went to White Castle, got me some burgers, man. <laughs> and I got, I got COVID back on that. I got you, brother. So you're checking in tonight with us from uh, Louisville, I think you said. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Tonight. This is my hometown. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1953. <sighs> it's been a while. <laughs> but uh, visiting family, visiting family up here. Yeah. Now, is home, are you in Glasgow when you're, when you're at home now, nowadays? Yeah. Yeah, I moved, I moved to Glasgow. Well, I left Louisville in 1977 to reconnect with Richard and Fred Young in the Headhunters. And, uh, of course, that's, that's a, it's a long, crazy journey, you know, and we can talk about that a little later. But uh, I, uh, I moved down, moved Louisville, left Louisville in 77, moved to Edmonton for about a year, and uh, got married in... Seventy-nine, and I've been in Glasgow, Kentucky ever since, and with my family. So it's uh, Glasgow's my home now. But uh, I, I consider Louisville, Edmonton, and Glasgow my homes. Really, they're all great places. So, a young Greg Martin in Louisville, Kentucky. Tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, just your early childhood and folks you ran with, mom and daddy, um, and what it was like uh, as a youth. Well, my mother. And Dad grew up in Midcap County. Uh, they they uh, were the children of farmers, and their, their parents were farmers. And after my dad went to World War II, he was a sergeant. And uh, when he came home, he married Bob. They moved to Louisville. And uh, I was born in 1953 in a little community up here called Highland Park, which is in the southern part of Louisville, which is pretty much gone now. And uh, we moved around. I know we lived on 6th Street uh, from like 1955 to 1960. And that was a mixed neighborhood. That's when I first started hearing blues and R&B music, you know, from the neighbor's house. And that kind of really grabbed my attention uh, way back. Uh, then we moved back to the South End. And in 1967, my dad got that up in Louisville. And he uh, uprooted everybody and moved us down to Midcap County. And about a, about a year later, I met Richard and Fred. But uh, growing up in Louisville, um, man, I never was a real great student at school, but music pretty much saved my life. Uh, I got interested in playing guitar, records, and radio early on, you know. And, um, uh, like I say, in school, I, I got, I mean, I graduated, you know, that thing, but I just kind of daydreamed through school, pretty much. But, uh, Louisville is, uh, I didn't, I really didn't play in that many bands up here. Of course, when I left the first time, 
I had just started playing guitar. I, I probably started playing after seeing the Beatles in 1964 on Ed Sullivan's show. And um, my brother had a guitar, and so I started grabbing it and learning chords out of a book and, and then picking out things by ear. But, uh, you know, Louisville's real dear to me. I love it. I love it a lot, man. Well, being in um, in that in Kentucky, I mean, Kentucky's just well known for bluegrass. And and if I if I mm-hmm. if I if my studies serve well, your brother kind of went into bluegrass music, did he not? He sure did. Um, my older brother Gary, he's now passed. He passed away in 2013, but he was a hero to me. Um, early on, he was into rock and roll music, like most kids were, and then at some point. Uh, when we moved to Midcap County, he stayed up here, and he got into R&B, which I didn't know much about that period of his life, you know, but which, I, which I think is pretty cool that he got into R&B and stuff like that. And then in 68, he had uh, a light went off, and he went stoned into bluegrass music. And uh, when he went into bluegrass music, he gave me his electric, which was a really cool Gretsch Silver Jet Oh, like a 1955 Silver Jet guitar, which is probably worth about, I don't know, six or seven grand now if I had yeah. it. I don't have the guitar anymore. But it was cool. They gave me a magnetone amplifier. They gave me some albums, some rock albums, and gave me some uh, a box of 45s and a turntable that I could plug into the magnetone amplifier and listen to the music. So, uh, but you're correct. Gary did go into bluegrass, and that's how I got... Yeah, kind of got to, he saw he saw earlier that I was learning how to kind of pick guitar stuff off of records by ear and I think that kind of intrigued him and so he just he helped me along a whole lot now you, your daddy was a bit of a musician as well wasn't he yes he was my dad played guitar he owned a Martin back when he was younger he never played professionally and I had an uncle my uncle Wade Martin played a lot of music. He was a honky-tonk country singer, and he had some success in Louisville and released uh, 45. He actually wrote Five Step and Daddy, which is on our Picking on Nashville album. Mm-hmm. But he went, he never, if he had went to Nashville in the 60s, early 60s, he would have had a really good shot at uh, the music business. But uh, he got married uh, started having kids and he had a job at the uh, Louisville Transit Bus Company and he would just end up playing he ended up playing shows opening up for Jack Green uh, oh gosh Loretta Lynn wow. Will Haggard and just played a lot of shows around around Louisville mostly and, and some some in the you know maybe south of here too so young Greg Martin has picked up the old uh Mel Bay guitar chord book, <laughs> like I had, yeah, and learned, and so he's picking around now. So Chris has a question that that regardless who it is that we have on our show, he always asks this question. So I let I'll, I'll, I'll refrain to him for that question, but I'll let him ask it to and you. And you would not believe, Greg, the people we've asked this question to, and they they come back to me and say, "Have you not listened to one word I've told you?" Um, but what was the first song you learned on guitar? The first. I can tell you, actually. I can tell you who showed it to me. Um, the first song I learned on guitar was a song by Ray Charles called What I Say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, oddly enough, is very similar to uh, 
Louisiana cocoa over its own. Yeah, yeah. But that's not me. I'm not the one who did that. <laughs> but uh, I got a good friend who we I still talk to. It lives up in the Gary Kenneman. Uh, his nickname was Curly. We went to school together, and he showed that he showed it to me on my front porch, <laughs> and that was the the, the shining moment that I went, okay, I got to do this and take it as far as I can. Yeah. So what I say, for Ray Charles, that was it. And then from there, I probably picked up uh, Day Tripper by the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, some Love and Spoonful, Herman's Hermits, whatever was popular at the time. Chris was talking to me coming over here to the studio tonight, and he was talking about he uh-huh. says, I think he was like a big Dusty Springfield fan, too. Who, <laughs> me? Yeah. No. I said, maybe <laughs> Buffalo, <laughs> maybe <laughs> said, Buffalo said, Springfield. I said I Dusty. I know that. I, mean, I do like it. <laughs> well, Greg, you really should look into some Dusty Springfield. <laughs> Wait a minute! I'm missing something here. What about what's the connection on Dusty Springfield? Well, he he was saying that Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo was all that was that was a connection we were trying to get. I meant to say Buffalo Springfield, and I threw out Dusty Springfield. Okay. uh, Well, hey, listen, Dusty Springfield, I like. I mean, I I don't know. I can't say a whole lot about Dusty Springfield, but uh, I like the Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, quite a bit. Exactly. <laughs> well, I know about Springfield, Illinois. <laughs> there you go. So all this time, <laughs> and, and as a matter, just to save a little time, let's get to the uh, young connection when you met with the young young boys. Mm-hmm. Itchy okay. brother. Itchy brother. Yeah. Okay. So what happened is uh, in November of nineteen sixty six, my dad came in from work one day. And announced that he had quit his job at Fawcett Printing Company in Louisville, and that we would be moving to Midcalf County, and uh, which was fine by me because we were spending summer down there anyway. And I had cousins and starting to accumulate friends down there, and uh, like I liked it down there. And so, right after Christmas of December 1966, right around uh, New Year's, uh, like the Beverly Hillbillies except backwards, we moved to Metcalf County. And um, so nothing really exciting happened in 67 that I remember except going to school and listening to records and picking up a few licks on a guitar. But I met Richard Young in October, I think it was October 1968. My uh, cousin Larry Sullivan came on the bus one day and was telling me about this guy that had just uh, moved to uh, Edmonton, and, and and his dad was doing some student teaching there, and it was Richard, and they were going to play a talent show in November, and um, it was a four H talent show. So I wanted to know if I'd be interested in playing. Of course, I hadn't played in front of anybody at that point, but I being a brave soul like I was not knowing what I was getting myself into. I said, yes, let's do it. <laughs> so, so I met Richard Young. When you say got on the bus, immediately I'm thinking tour bus. You're talking about school, school bus. bus yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about school bus, man. <laughs> I was like, man, Greg's no already on tour, tour bus. bus. <laughs> I mean, I never knew a tour bus existed at that point. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, about, I, was, I was a freshman in high school. Richard was in the eighth grade yeah. at this point. 
And so I met Richard, and I was going to Midcap County High School. He was going to Midcap County Middle School. So I met him in the lunchroom one afternoon, and we sat down with our guitars and said, okay, we played Hey Jude by the Beatles. We played um, maybe Jumpin' Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones. We probably jammed on Sunshine of Your Love by the Cream. And I think we may have jammed on... Uh, we may have attempted Intergon and Davida by Iron Butterfly, but I remember, I remember jamming on uh, Born to Be Wild. And we said, okay, yeah, we could do this. So Richard, myself, and three other guys from school put this little band together to play this talent show. And I can't remember what we called ourselves, but we I don't think we placed that high. We really weren't that good, <laughs> you know. And uh, so immediately after that, Richard said, well, I've got a band with my brother Fred and my cousin Anthony. You want to come over and jam with us? And I said, sure, let's do it. And so I went over to the practice house. We jammed on the song. They said, yeah, man, let's do it. And that was it. That was kind of, that was the uh, genesis for Itchy Brother. And of course, that led into the Kentucky Headhunters, as you know. We went through a series of names. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the name we were using when I first started with them, they were called the Truce. And Truce. then we changed the name to uh, Aftermath. And we had, and I think we called the band Mandrake Velvet for a while and uh, went through a series of names until we landed on Itchy Brother around 1973. So there you go. That, that, that's the short version of it. <laughs> and so Itchy Brother, I mean, was pretty much active from 68 to mid early 80s. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... yeah, just just a different name. Yeah, we we changed our name. Uh, you know, we were like everybody else. We we're trying to figure out what we needed to do musically, and then we said, oh, "We're tired of this name, so we change it." So yeah, we started. I started playing with Richard and Fred in nineteen sixty eight, and we played off and on all through these years until the Headhunters. The the, the official year for the Headhunters forming is really nineteen eighty six when it became. We used the name. And Doug Phelps came into the band, you know. But me and Richard and Fred always played together off and on. So everybody's going to ask me, how did the name Itchy Brother come about? I know, but you need to tell oh, these folks. You know, okay. Okay, Itchy Brother was a character on a cartoon that was popular in the mid-60s called King Leonardo and Friends. King Leonardo was the king of this fictitious kingdom called Bongo Congo. <laughs> and his evil brother was Itchy Brother. There were lions. And Itchy Brother worked for Biggie Rat. And they were always trying to turn over the kingdom and take it over from King Leonardo. <laughs> and King Leonardo's... <laughs> this is crazy. I can't believe I remember this. Stuff. <laughs> King Leonardo's... Side... <laughs> yeah, I said, hey, this is good, man. Hey, yeah. Yeah. King Leonardo's uh, sidekick was Odie Colony, who was a skunk. <laughs> Brother 45 from 
King Leonardo or whatever that was. He's, he's yeah, already punching King, a keyboard. Leonardo yeah, was he's in there. King well, Leonardo was the good king, and his evil brother was Itchy Brother. <laughs> we weren't evil. Our band was not evil. Oh, no, no, no. So, from, I mean, you're talking about 14 years, you know, Itchy Brother was out there uh, making it happen. I, I'm assuming that was that was y'all's gig. That was y'all's living during that time. Or, or what were, was there anything else going on with the band where y'all were just touring and making it happen? Uh, well, well, when we started in 68, we we're like any other kid. We were, we, I, I have, maybe Richard and Fred, I think they had more of a vision what they wanted to do in life. You know, I think they, they were set, dead set on getting in the music business and making it. And I, I, I honestly, God, there was a period from like 1972 to 1977, I was just content working. And I and, and so I, I moved back to Louisville for like a five-year period. So Itchy Brother went on without me for a little bit. And, um, but yeah, I, I'm gonna, when Richard and Fred, when Richard got out of school, uh, Richard, he graduated in 73, Fred, 1976 or seven, it, they were playing music pretty much full time. That's what they did for a living. I played music on the side in Louisville for a while, but when I moved back in 1977 to play the Mitchie Brother, that that was it. That's when I jumped back into music full time, and I never looked back at it. You know, so from '68 to the Kentucky Headhunters, there was always uh, a band. And Itchy Brother was the name we use most of the time, for sure. So uh, fast forward in a little bit. I mean, you're out there mm-hmm. uh, making your trying to get your name out about stuff. Tell us a story. Mm-hmm. You basically just cold called Swan Song Records. Absolutely. That was a that was the winter. It was, it was probably the winter of '77, and it was cold, and we were snowed in. It could have been early 1978. We were stuck at the house one day, and Richard looked down on the floor, and there was a, a Led Zeppelin album. And he said, listen, <laughs> he got the number of Swan Song Records from the operator. That's how you did things back then. Yeah. And he, he, he called. And um, the crazy thing, normally a um, it was like, about closing time. And normally, there was a, a lady named Helen that worked the front desk. She would answer. But lo and behold, it was just a strange day. She was gone, and Mitchell Fox, who became our manager later, uh, he just hear, he heard the phone ring, and he answered it. And he heard Richard on the other line. He said it was about like getting a call from outer space or something. And, uh, and that started the conversation with Mitchell and the Swan Talk Records, right then. I wish I could tell you exactly when it happened. It was either late 77 or early 1978. I just know that we were all snowed in. Right. And it, was, it was a cold call. <laughs> in more ways than one. Yes, it was. <laughs> and then we didn't realize the disco was calling. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to kill rock and roll. Kill rock and roll for many years. Just for a minute. It kind of it killed our, our, our uh, dealings with well, there was other things that happened because John Bonham's death and this and that. But uh, man, music changed there for a little bit. You know. So from that point, y'all kind of like 
kind of put it on a little hiatus, and you, were, yeah, you went well, on the road we, with Ronnie we, McDowell. Yeah. Uh, we really hit it hard from 77 to 78, and we were really attempting you know, to write songs, do demos, and get a record deal with Swan Song. That was our goal. But after John Bonham, I mean, there, there was a couple of things that happened. After John Bonham passed, uh, Zeppelin lost interest in the label. Uh, music was getting bombed, you know, rock music was getting bombarded by disco, and everything changed for a while. So I got married in 1979, and I had to have a job. So uh, I had to end up leaving Itchy Brother for a bit, and I went on the road with an R&D band, and we played down south quite a bit, and then eventually I started playing with Ronnie McDowell, and uh, like uh, I think it was like September of 1981, maybe October. And I was with Ronnie McDowell eight and a half years now, but during that time I still played with Richard and Fred on the side when I could. And that's how I met Doug Phelps, uh, the singer in the Headhunters. I met him through Ronnie McDowell and introduced him to Richard and Fred. It all ties together in some way. Yeah, it's, all, it's a big puzzle, man. And I, I think if you look at anybody, whether it be Phil Collins of Genesis or Van Halen, uh, how these bands came together, it's all a, uh, an amazing puzzle. And how the little pieces fit together, it's, it's kind of amazing because certain things just had to happen for the end result, which is the Headhunters in this case. Yeah, so y'all keep playing and you wind up with a little radio show that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, what was it yeah. called? The Chitlin, uh, Chitlin something. Chitlin show. The Chitlin show, and y'all were just basically jamming on the radio station. We sure were live on our radio station, WLC in Mumfordville, Kentucky. And what happened in nineteen eighty six, spring of eighty six? Uh, that was McDowell, and me and Richard and Fred decided we wanted to get together and just play for fun. Because they weren't, Itchy Brother had kind of fallen apart at that point. And we just ground up, put another, another band together. And uh, when we asked our cousin Anthony if he wanted to play, he had just taken a job and he couldn't do it. And I invited Doug Phelps up to jam. And we saw that with Doug, we, we could do something. So we started uh, we started a whole new thing. We just called it the Headhunters. And about just a few months later, we started doing the radio show at Murfordville, the Chitlin Show. And then about a few months later than that, uh, Ricky Phelps joined the band. And we played a lot of gigs, wrote a lot of songs, rehearsed. And, of course, we uh, got our record deal with Mercury Records in 1989. But you had cut that pretty much the whole debut album uh, from yeah. a basically a $4,500 gift from a guy or just told you to go cut some. Yes. Go cut it. Yeah, Jonathan D.W. Lyle. Yeah, that's a, long, that's a crazy story. Well, we initially, when Ricky Phelps joined the band, and I'm thinking he joined, it could, it could have been the latter part of 86, but I'm almost thinking it might have been 87. There was a lady wanted him to record Walk Softly on His Heart of Mine. And she gave him enough money for us to go in the studio. So we did a 45 of Walk Softly on one side and, and Hold On To Me. And there's just a very few copies of those floating around. It's a, a different versions, different versions of what ended up later. But uh, 
that little 45 didn't do much, you know, sold a few copies around home. But we, uh, after running the gal one night, we were playing a place called Duke's in Richmond, Virginia. And one night, um, at the end of the night, we were playing as Ronnie McDowell walked off the stage, the band we kicked in the hideaway by Freddie King. And this gentleman walked up by the name of Jonathan D.W. Law, and he befriended Doug and me. And we started telling about our band back home with the Headhunters, which Kentucky hadn't been added yet. And he got really intrigued because he loved music, and he had a I think he put some money on a small label at that point. And he started coming to see us, and then, lo and behold, he gave us $4,500. And that's how we cut uh, eight of the tracks on Picking on Nashville. And uh, that was where the, the little cassette tape was released around 87 or 88. It was just a cassette. And that oh, thing just took off. I mean, or was it the video? Was it the video? No, we ain't got there yet. We ain't even got to the showcase well, that I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I want to. It was the tape. The tape. You know, we did the tape. Tell us about the and showcase. Then, oh, no, I, I miss I miss him. But the tape, he got to the attention of a couple record labels in Nashville. And we did a showcase at Douglas Corner uh, at the end of 88. And, um, we had some interest from CBS Records, but they ended up uh, pulling, pulling. They didn't want to do it. They thought we were true rock and roll, which uh, we were live. We were a lot more rock and roll. And Harold Chip from Mercury saw something that night, and uh, he started talking to our manager, who was Mitchell Fox, the guy from the Swans Home Days. Mm-hmm. And we ended up. Um, uh, basically signed with Mercury Records in the spring, uh, late spring of 1989. So they basically took the same songs that we had on the cassette. We added two more songs, remixed some stuff, and it was released in October 1989. And it took, yeah, when the first video came out, it took off pretty quick after that. They said, uh, and I, I've seen it a couple different things, that by the time you did your showcase, there's like two or three people left in there because y'all were so loud and rocking it just kind of scared everybody off but Harold Shedd yeah oh yeah man we were we were not country yeah. no the funny thing is it was now I like I like traditional country music I love it a lot but uh, our band was nothing like that and actually the same night we showcased Leroy Parnell was there too and when he saw us play he told me this years later he said I said to myself heavy metal bluegrass exactly <laughs> You know yeah, we weren't having metal. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, a lot of the labels, you know, there was, I think RCA was there, CBS was there, and the only one left standing at the end of the night was Mercury Records, and uh, that was exactly who we needed, you know. Yeah. You know what I think, Greg? I think Harold Shedd was sitting there on all that old Alabama money he when he discovered them and produced them. He's like, I'll just throw the dice and see what we stick, and lo and behold, <laughs> playing with house money well, anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, but Harold, Harold was a real, he knew if something touched him, he had an uncanny ability to pick out stuff that he felt like that the public would like. And of course, he knew that with Alabama. 
he, of course, he ended up, you know, signing us. He signed, I think, KT Osmond. Yeah. Um, who else did he? I think Billy Ray Cyrus, maybe, and some other people. But I, I tell you what, Donnie, it was Walk Softly is what really pulled the trigger for him. Oh, yeah. And um, he liked something about that song, about the beat, the bass drum, and the bass guitar, and how the vocals fit on top. And I, I can't say enough good things about Harold. He's, he's a great man. Really think a lot of him. Folks, it's about to get serious in Nashville, and we're going to take you to the break here with another yeah. song off of that Picking on Nashville debut album by the Kentucky Headhunters called Dumas Walker. We will be back after these brief messages from our sponsors, and we will talk to Brother Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters. You're with Cole Mountain Cal, Christopher Cheeto Cheatham. The producer, good doctor, Steve Thomason. You're listening to The Crossing, where the music meets the memories. We'll be right back. Sun's out, plow's out, folks. Time to get your gardens planted. And when you need your planting supplies, T.R. Thomas Mill in Coal Mountain is the place you need to go. Come in and get your seeds for your corn, peas, turnips, and beans. We got half runners and full runners. Don't forget, you gotta have some dewanna for fertilizer. T.R. Thomas Mill. Hey, we're in Coal Mountain, Spot Road, USA, across from Jan's Jeans. We're not sure what is more famous, the Bully Burgers or the Siren. Of course, we're talking about the Dawsonville Pool Room located on Bill Elliott Street in Dawsonville. Whether you want to stop by for a game of pool or enjoy one of those world-famous Bully Burgers, be sure to take our gander at all the photos and news clippings from racing history in Dawson County. From dirt tracks to super speedways, it's all captured on the walls of the pool room. Dine or take out, that's a Dawsonville Pool Room where the siren sounds on every Elliott wind. You probably haven't checked the propane tank lately. It's when the pilot light goes out that you finally notice, right? And now you're in a bind. Who do you call? Mills Fuel Service right now. Mills Fuel has provided North Georgia with fast, courteous service and clean propane for over 50 years. So don't let the tank hit rock bottom. Call Mills today, 706-265-3394. Three locations to serve you coming Dawsonville and Dahlonega online at millsfuelservice.com. Hey, this is Joe Bonzel with the Oak Ridge Boys, and you're listening to Chris and Cal, along with producer Steve. This is The Crossing, where the music meets memories.
And we are back with the second segment of The Crossing, where the music meets memories here with Brother Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters. A little old lonesome me coming off the uh, Picking on Nashville debut album. Old Don Gibson song, Greg. Yeah, I don't know what Don thought about that at first when he heard it. He probably was scratching his head. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I meant to ask you, did you ever meet Bill Monroe about that song, Walk Softly on His Heart of Mine? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we met Bill Monroe. Yeah, Bill was cool. I mean, Bill was very quiet in the beginning. Yeah. Everybody was, like, really curious what Bill was going to say because Bill was known to voice his opinions about uh, people messing with bluegrass music. Right. You know, I think it's well documented that he didn't get along with bluegrass revival initially, you know. But after we cut Walk Softly, there was a couple of very positive reviews came out of Nashville. And next thing we know, uh, Bill, we met Bill. He was, he was very kind to us. And I think it was after, <laughs> I, I believe it was after he got his first royalty check, I think. Or, uh, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that before. There ain't nothing wrong with that mailbox when they go out there to pick up that check. Um, them songs are sounding a lot better. <laughs> you know, Ricky Skaggs said he told him he goes when Ricky Skaggs did uh, Uncle Penn. He goes, uh, 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 Ricky, uh, that Uncle Penn song of mine you done. He goes, I went out to the mailbox the other day and I got one of them royalty checks from it, and uh, is is mighty powerful. This mighty powerful check. <laughs> he said that paid that paid all my taxes. Paid all my taxes this year, and I had a little more left over. You know, we we, we became really good friends with Bill Monroe. He came to our gold and platinum parties. Uh, we played Dean Blossom with him. He came on stage, and he played mandolin with us on Walk Softly. And, of course, uh, you know, we stayed in touch with Bill. We'd see him from time to time. And uh, when he passed away, I went to his funeral in Rosine, Kentucky. Bill was a great man, and, uh, man, we really, really treasure the memories of uh, getting to know Bill Monroe and you know, he, he's such a great ambassador to music for our state. Yeah, that's awesome, man. But meanwhile, Picking on Nashville has blowed up. Y'all are winning CMA Awards, ACM Awards. Yeah. I mean, wh at what point, Greg, did you say, okay, we've made it? <laughs> when you got Bill Monroe showing up at the studio? <laughs> when the jam? <laughs> well, I mean... I don't know, man. You know, like, when we signed our recording contract with Mercury, that was a milestone right there. Yeah. Of course, a lot of people, you know, don't realize that once you sign a contract, the hard part begins. You don't know how long you're going to keep it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just don't know what, what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think, man, after, after the album went gold and we started winning those awards, I think it was pretty obvious that we, we'd hit on a pretty good thing there and uh there again <laughs> i've always been suspicious of the music business you never know how long it's going to last i remember after 1991 we won our second award i went okay <laughs> i'm not sure how much longer this is going to last <laughs> of course it, you know that that original lineup didn't last that much longer right but, but hey it's uh it we were very very fortunate guys for what happened it came at a time in their lives that it really made a good difference. And, uh, man, to me, just to make a living at playing music, uh, it, that's success to me. And did, sure. you, did you feel that Nashville was real receptive of you guys? Because that yeah, was 
That was de- y'all were definitely bringing something new to the table, you know. It was. I mean, we weren't. I mean, you got to remember, growing up, that wasn't our goal in life to go to Nashville. Um, I probably I went because I needed a job in 1981, so I started Ronnie McDowell, which was the best thing to happen for me at the time because I met Doug Phelps, and then I learned about working in the studio and different things. And Richard went to work at Acuff Rose uh, Publishing. Uh, Fred ended up working for Sylvia, country music singer Sylvia. And, uh, of course, I met Doug Phelps. But, yeah, country music, if you go back to the 80s, it was a whole different animal. When we came out on the scene, um, Steve Earle had kind of knocked the door open a little bit. It was Foster and Lloyd. Dwight Yoakam was doing his uh, raw version of country. So, you know, the Georgia satellites were happening uh, in the rock scene. So the kind of music we were doing was, I think it was accepted pretty well. And there were, I I guess, maybe Nashville viewed us as their um, uh, answer to the Georgia satellites. But I've always considered ourselves very kindred spirits. We really loved Dan Baird and those guys a lot. And Mercy, I mean, they... Right out of the gate, they pretty much threw you on one of the biggest tours going around with Hank Jr. Yeah, Hank Jr., yeah. That was that was great. That was, uh, oh, Lord, when did that happen? That was the spring of 1990, the Lone Wolf Tour. And I think <laughs> that the first date was uh, in Florida. And, that, and we did that about a year and a half with Hank. He was great. We really enjoyed it. I'm assuming, I'm assuming you, you had to have had moments during that tour of just being starstruck? I mean, what, what was the first person that you came in contact with where you were just starstruck? Like, I can't believe I'm standing here in front of this person. <laughs> well, that, that, that could be any time for me, man. And I'm, I, could, I think the guys, any of the rest of the guys in my band are the same way. Um, oh, my Lord. Where well, I was really starstruck... No, I like, yeah, well, Hank, you know, we love Hank Jr., but I think what really, I walked into a trailer one time at Farm Aid, and I walked right into Ringo Starr, and I think that just about, uh, you know, I didn't know what to say, man, because Ringo Starr is up there in the galaxy, you know. It's a beetle. And, yeah, I mean, come on, man. Those are real stars, man. A lot of the the stars that were are kind of fabricated, you know, but then there's people like Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, and Little Haggard, people like that are uh-huh. the real deal. And uh, getting to meet Ringo Starr, I was really, that was amazing. It was. And we got to meet so many of the people that we grew up listening to. We've been really blessed. Right, now, come on, Greg. I mean, you can Ringo Starr me all day long, but I don't hear about this first tour bus y'all got. That was it. <laughs> It was a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> most most people say that they don't get the they don't. They don't say that. Yeah, well, they say that our first bus was a junk. Compared to buses now, it was like riding on a turnip wagon, and that's about what we deserved, probably. <laughs> but but the key word was you had a bus, right? We had a bus. Had a we boy. Had, it was an MCI MCI that belonged. To, it was one of the buses that Elvis bought. And it wasn't his bus. I think J.D. Sumner and the Stamps Quartet rode around on that bus. We ended up buying it, and we, you know, we repainted it. And it was it was was a good bus. We we had that from 
1992, I believe. Small world, producer Steve sitting there saying, I've been on that bus. He, he toured the gospel circuit back in the day for a while. He said he thinks he's been on oh, that okay, bus. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, man. I played with Wendy Bagel. He was with Wendy Bagel. Yeah, he was with Wendy Bagel. And the Sunliners. Yeah. Here come the Rattlesnakes. Yeah, that was him. Yep. yep. You know, tour, touring with Wendy Bagel, touring with the old Hank Jr. I mean, kind of the same. <laughs> It's it's kind of <laughs> well. Let me tell you, man. When I was in high school, when I was in high school, uh, I was playing with Richard and Fred, but I also played in a gospel group, a Southern gospel group called the Edmonton Quartet, and and we used to open up for the Oak Ridge Boys. And I thought those guys. I'm talking about the Oak Ridge Boys, and Steve will know this. Back when they were doing Jesus is Coming Soon, I know, and uh, when. Uh, Oh gosh, this is when Bill Golden still had black hair and no beard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought those guys were mega stars back then. You know, so I've always been starstruck. I'm not gonna lie to you, man. Did you stay in contact at all with any of the? You mentioned the Oak Ridge Boys. You stay in contact with them at all? Well, it's funny because we know those guys pretty well, and. Uh, 1972, Edmund Quartet played with the Oak Ridge Boys in Hodgenville, Kentucky. And Dwayne actually took me aside that night and said, you ought to, if you ever thought about going to Nashville to get in the studio work? And of course, at that point, I hadn't thought about anything much but just getting out of school because that was my senior year. You know, and and, uh, and then I, his guitar player, uh, John Rich, was trying to trade me out of my Les Paul because I had a brand new Les Paul custom and they were they were kind of rare at that point uh, and uh, he was wanting to trade me two Telecasters you know but yeah I, I've actually stayed in touch with most of those guys the ones that are still alive you know like Bill Golden and Dwayne uh, John Rich uh, oh gosh John Breland the bass player I knew him for a long time so we got to know Tony Brown of course yeah yeah well, because, because up until um, a couple of days ago when Cal got your name in his phone, Joe Bonza was the biggest name in his phone. Okay. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you, know, you know, Joe, Joe, I didn't get to know until later uh, because when I was in high school, I believe Richard Sturban, see, let me think about this. The last time I played with those guys, actually, Noel Fox was singing bass for me. I think I think Richard came in a little bit later, you know. Uh, and so I never really got to know Joe and Richard till later, you know. So back to picking on Nashville. I'm yeah. in I'm in the vein of thinking that video launched your guys' career, I'm thinking. More than radio. Uh, it did. It did actually uh, Cause I remember seeing well, well, I remember uh, Walk Softly coming on on CMT and I'm like it was just like blowing me away, and then I'm like, "These guys are that's this is what I like the old style with with some dry put to it, and it's just it just then every video after that was then Fred he was like a national treasure all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we actually we just played about three weeks ago. We played at Paragool, Arkansas, and we played the same theater where we shot most of the footage for uh, Along to Me. You know. And, uh, but yeah, man, you know, back in the, 
eighties, nineties. I mean, I don't, I don't know now because I never really watched. Uh, I don't even know if there's still that many video channels left. I, I don't watch TV that much. So I don't know. But back then, videos were huge. And yeah, they they really that that, that launched our career. Walk softly, then bam! You know, the following spring yeah. when we released Stuart Walker, it just it just got people. And then along to me right after that. Hey, this is this is Steve here, Greg. Just got a question for you. What's yes, going? What's going through whose mind back in the day when you're getting ready for Dumas Walker's video to say, Fred, why don't you take your shirt off and put on a coonskin hat? Well, he just had that on when he got there, probably, right? I don't even know. I don't know where that came from. I mean, I was just too busy trying to figure out. <laughs> I just get through the video. Uh, I, I don't it. know when the, sh- the shirt. I don't know when the shirt came off. And, <laughs> And I don't even know where the hat came from. You know, I really don't know. That's a good question. Was that shot on location? Was that at the actual uh, Dumas Walker location, or was it somewhere else? No. No. No, Dumas Walker was just a little package store, a little grocery store in Moss, Tennessee. Gotcha. And Dumas was a marble shooter, and... I mean, it's it's crazy because the song is about two different places. Okay, it's weird. It's yeah. weird. So all burgers, fries, and bottles of ski actually come from Greensburg, Kentucky, a place called the Greasy Spoon. Okay, and and uh, Dumas Walker. It was a whole different thing because that was a place we used to go down and buy. You know, you couldn't get beer in Edmonton or Glasgow back then. They were dry county, Barron County, Metcalf County, Monroe County were all dry. So people would have to go over to Tennessee Line to buy beer. And then was to sell beer, we'd buy firecrackers, we'd buy M80s, cherry bombs, <laughs> things like that. And uh, so when it came to shoot the video, we had to end up coming up with a, a, a you know, an idea of a place. So we ended up using the, uh, the Monroe County marching band room and decorated it into a kind of a club place. And that's how we shot the video. Gotcha. And neither Dumas Walker's place didn't look like that, nor the Greasy Spoon. So <laughs> the video's kind of, uh, we took liberties with the uh, the plot a little bit. There you go. I like how they mm-hmm. turned the uh, bottles of ski, they turned the label around where you couldn't see that. I noticed that today. Is that right? Yeah. I, I can't remember. Didn't want to yeah. advertise that. Folks, we're going to yeah. take another yeah. quick break. We're with Brother Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters. Uh, Steve, let's go out. I don't even have this on the plan, but let's go out with a, a old cover song they did by Buck Owens called uh, Made in Japan. You listen to The Crossing for the music meets some memories.
Jan's Jeans for all your needs in today's fashions. Specializing in Jordache and Gloria Vanderbilt and my favorite, Calvin Klein. Jan's Jeans can fit you in a pair today. And for y'all Yon's Cowgirls, we even carry them form-fitting Wranglers. Stop by and see us at Jan's Jeans, Spot Road in Cole Mountain, Forsyth County, Georgia, U.S. of A. I can smell those great steaks now. Yep, that's Western Steer. The hallmark of the Steer is a great food at a great value. The Steer earned their reputation as America's Steakhouse for a reason. They serve great steaks. From choice age sirloin to that tasty ribeye, every cut is hand-carved and grilled to perfection. And at $5.99 to $14.99, nobody can beat that price. And don't forget that great salad and dessert bar. That's the Western Steer, located off Ball Ridge Marina Road on Georgia 400. Transforming the way you listen to sports. Yep, we've covered all of it, at least since 1978, 79, 80, 81, 82. Okay, you get the point. We've got it covered. The North Georgia Sports Link. Go ahead. Like us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Keyword search, North Georgia Sports Link. Honey, I'm about to starve to death. Let's run out to Rita and Jake's. That's right, the Appalachian on Atlanta Road and coming. They have the best fried chicken in these parts. Not to mention the fresh cooked veggies and crisp salads. That's right, the Appalachians. They don't call them the fried chicken king of Silver City for nothing. The Appalachian, proudly using America's best flour. I'm in love for the first time. Now don't you know it's gonna last Your love is born forever, y'all yeah. It's a love that has no pain oh, Don't let me down oh, Don't let me That was the Kentucky Headhunters playing Don't Bring Me Down off of their, I'm assuming, Greg, this is your latest release live at uh, the Ramblin' Man Fair. Yeah, I remember this stuff. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. We have another (laughs) album coming out later this year. It's finished, but uh, I can't really tell you anything about it other than the songs are finished right now. That's all I can tell you right now. I wish I knew more. So, as they say sometimes... It's a shooting star in the music business. Uh, after a couple of years, after the release of that debut album, y'all had a couple, one or two more albums, and lineup change. Y'all were you, you were kind of in limbo after that. The Headhunters were. We were. Yeah. Yeah. It, it got it got really interesting pretty quick. <laughs> I can laugh about it now. Of course. Uh, we're too funny then, but yeah. Well, when we when Ricky joined us, and I love Ricky by the way. This is no. I don't have anything sad to, uh, bad to say about Ricky Phelps because he kind of joined the band reluctantly. 
Yeah, y'all still you know, close I, friends I too, right? Yeah, yeah, I have no problem with Ricky at all. He's doing what he needs to be doing. We're still doing our thing, and I have no problem with that at all. He, uh, he just, uh, you know, it was a lot of work going into the Headhunters, you know, 1989. 1990 was hard work. 1991 was hard work. And it came to 1992. We were getting bombarded with a lot of different offers. And we were supposed to do another album. And Ricky kept saying, I need a break, need a break, need a break. You know, of course, we knew we probably, now in retrospect, we probably should have took that break, I guess. But uh, it just got to the point where Ricky just had enough of it. And um, lo and behold, he left the band. And Doug kind of, he reluctantly left. He, I don't think he really wanted to leave, but, you know, blood is thicker than water, and that's what he did. And, that's just what happened. So, yeah, by June 1992, we had two members gone, and we had to take a little break, and, and, and we had to pick up the pieces real fast. So we added our cousin, Anthony Kenny, back in on bass and vocals, and we had a singer by the name of Mark Orr. And Mark was a great, great singer, more of a rock singer. But he right. didn't have any country in his voice, which I'm, that's not neither, that's not a bad thing, but he was, he was a great singer and a great writer and a great guy. And, but um, the chemistry, we released Rayvon um, towards the end of 92. It did, it did okay, but it, we didn't have the success that, uh, that picked on Nashville. Neither Electric Barnyard really didn't do it as well either. So, yeah, it was interesting times, man. We were trying to put the puzzle back together, you know. So, Chris, somewhere around 1992, I know it was pretty much 1992, I'm at Lakewood Amphitheater in Atlanta, Georgia. Yep. I'm at a Leonard Skinner concert. So, yeah. they're out playing, I look, and uh, Ed King's playing, like, real tentatively, you know, like, I don't, I couldn't figure out what was going on, because I'm a big Skinner fan. So, we're yeah, sitting sure. there, and then all of a sudden... I hear this when he makes this announcement. So, please give a good warm welcome to Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters. Yeah, that, my just, friend, is Ed King introducing our guest tonight, Greg Martin, <laughs> sitting in with Leonard Skinner. Tell us about that. That is interesting. <laughs> Well, sounds to me like while y'all kind of maybe was doing a little bit of a hiatus, the door got left open and a little band out of Jacksonville might have started calling Greg Martin. <laughs> well, it, I it mean, I'm just saying. It really, it was kind of interesting. <laughs> what happened? What happened in 19, well, we're talking about 1992, which is a crazy year anyway. Right. Um, I went to the Dallas Guitar Show. Me and our sound man, Steve Wilson, dear friend of mine, who I was just, we were just hanging with Herbert today up here in Louisville. He lives here. We decided the headhunters had to do something. Three of us had to do something in uh, Memphis. It could have been April 1992. And so Steve and I decided, well, we're going to hang in Memphis for three days. We're going to go down to the Delta. We're going to go down and see where, you know, see some of the blue sites and things like that. And then we're going to the Dallas Guitar Show. So we go to the Dallas Guitar Show, and I run into Ed King there. Ed King, um, which I've got a guitar that belonged to Ed King at one time. It, it, I got it from Hank Jr., a 58 Les Paul. 
and he wanted to see that guitar, and we talked, and we hit it off. We hit it off really well. He loved the Headhunters. He was really, he loved what I did on the guitar. He was just so kind. And, oh gosh, around April, it might be around May, around May, I was mowing the yard one afternoon, and I went in the house to get something to drink, and I noticed on my uh, studio line, there was a, a, a message, and it was Ed King. So, hey, Greg, this is Ed King. Uh, my fingers broke, and I was wondering if you were to come out and play with us to help us out. We got, we got like two weeks, I think it was like three weeks worth of shows, and um, can you come out and help us? Of course, you know, <laughs> being younger, and I didn't really think it through. I said, "Yeah, well, sure." You know, the head on his walls. So I went out. I went out. So I kind of subbed for Ed for like three weeks. But I, I, I would. I wouldn't play the whole show. I'd play maybe like half the show, and Ed. Ed could still play slide, but uh, I just went out and hung with him for three weeks. And uh, they were they were kind to me. Uh, Ashley was offered a job with Leonard Skinner '94 to play guitar, but I I loved the guys. I just turned it down and stayed in my own band, you know. Yeah. Well, that's a feather in your cap. I mean, that's not an easy gig when you got to play no, a Skinner man, part it, because it, those it, three guitars that people think it's Skinner stuff is easy to play, but it, it's not. Exactly, exactly, and that's what I learned. You can't go out there and just jam or fudge your way through it. Uh, those guys have very specific parts that they do, and uh, I could have done it, but it really wasn't my calling. You know, it wasn't what I was supposed to do in life. Right. And they ended up finding the right people to keep that thing going. And yeah. I, I must say that I love Gary, I love Dale, I love the guys that are. I've loved every one of them, and and Ed King. We were really good friends. You know, I think we'll love every one of them. And, and you're right; it was a, it was an honor to get to do it. And uh, you know, growing up playing, you know, we all had to play, uh, attempted to play "Sweet Home Alabama." Oh yeah, a long way, you yeah. know. Uh, so to actually get to play with the guys and, and attempt to learn it the right way was a, an honor. And I remember the, I remember that show you're talking about. I remember exactly that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there. It was great. It's awesome. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. I want to go maybe fast forward a little bit just just sure. to get to this part because I wanted our listeners to hear this. This time, from all recollections that I've heard from past interviews and stuff, you're a little bit of personal turmoil, and then you had a, like a uh, trip to church back in 1994. You want to tell us about that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I sure do. February okay. '94. Yes, sir. Well, you know, more or less, guys. You know, you, you get into a situation where the band just explodes, and you're winning everything, and everything is just going hunky dory. And then all of a sudden, in June of '92, the band imploded. It just blew apart. And it pretty much, uh, I mean, it shattered. And it was, it was kind of, it was a, a rude awakening, so to speak. And I slipped into some depression, and I'm not going to lie to you, I got into some drinking uh, a little bit, not not heavy, but enough to take my focus off of things. And I think around 93, I knew that 
maybe I had gotten away from my spiritual side and gotten away from, you know, going to church and, and my walk with the Lord. And I had an aunt, my mother's twin sister, my Aunt Ruby. Now, my mother passed away in 1982, so she didn't get to see any of this uh, success stuff. But my Aunt Ruby, her identical twin, did. And I guess, you know, God was using her to get me back into church. And so one Sunday, you know, she said, uh, uh, I just had this uncanny feeling I needed to go to church. So I got my, uh, Ruth couldn't go, my wife, but I got my son ready. We went to Cedar Flat Presbyterian Church, and uh, preacher Roger Porter gave a message, and I went forward and uh, kind of got things right with the Lord. And Because uh, there was a lot of, packing a lot of resentment around. I, I have to be honest with you, I was, I was pretty mad at Ricky Phelps and Doug when it first happened, you know, yeah. and, 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 and that's unfounded, really. It was, I mean, it, it could have been done better, you know, we could have, maybe we could have all worked things out better, but regardless, here in 2021, it, it, it doesn't matter. Things yeah. work out like they're supposed to. I got my, myself right with the Lord. Uh, I got rid of that resentment. Um, there was like, a, when I went to the altar, there was a, like a, thousands of pounds went off on me and um, it was just it was a good thing man it really was it was more of a spiritual turmoil I wasn't right like that wasn't you know I wasn't wallowing in drug and alcohol abuse or anything like that it's just you know just confused about the whole thing I yeah. guess well, that's awesome man I mean we're, we're a show of the people and we keep it real so we, we tell it we tell all sides if we can get to it <laughs> well I mean well you know man and I'm real proud of our success, but when it comes down to it, uh, our spiritual walk is very important. And um, the way I look at it, eternity is going to be a heck of a lot longer than what we have here on Earth. So we need to do the right stuff the best we can down here. And most of the time, well, actually all the time, we need some help from the man above, <laughs> you know. And uh, it, it's crazy. And going through the pandemic, God, it's bad. that was a, I mean, we're still not through it, but... You know, at least we're kind yeah. of seeing some light now. Amen to but, that, brother. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about the uh, mighty Jeremiah's. Well, the Jeremiah's kind of sprang out of what we were talking about. Um, when the headhunters busted up initially, we, me and Richard and Fred, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that us three were going to stick together. So we were putting that back together, and I was going into a studio in Glasgow, Kentucky, with my stepson, John, and uh, some different people just, laying down tracks and initially they we were just having some fun you know it was just like therapy it was just therapy type stuff and so you know about the somebody's it's crazy you wouldn't believe this right now david Derrick is trying to call me from the studio <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what that's all about his, his name just popped up on my phone so anyway I was just going in and cutting tracks for fun. And then when we had Jimmy Hall came in one afternoon and sang on John the Revelator and a couple other tracks, I went, oh, my gosh, this is powerful stuff. And so from that moment on, I started, you know, we started writing some songs and, and gearing them towards kind of the spiritual side and having Jimmy come up and sing. And that's, that's, it, was, it was more of a, it, it's a gospel album. But it's really geared toward people that like blues, southern rock, and things like that. You know, it's kind of like a ZZ Top meets Jesus, ain't it? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus is easy top meat on the border for tacos. There you go. <laughs> so, so Greg, now that we've we've we're, we're you know we kind of gone we've gone a whole year now through this whole pandemic thing, and what the people that we've interviewed, we've Cal and I, I, I in my mind, I keep thinking that during all this time, we're going to have some amazing music that's going to be coming out. You already yeah. said, you already shared that y'all got a new album coming out. So what? what yeah. What's the what do you what do you feel is going to be the future for live music? I mean, I think everybody's just everybody's so hungry for it. Uh, Cal and I go to concerts all the time together, and we've we've all missed it. Uh, we're in a band together, and we love playing out at, at places. And heck, we haven't played <laughs> we haven't played out in so long. Um, what do you well, think? What do you think the future's looking like for live music? Um, I don't. No one really knows. We're crawling back into it. We have we played three weekends in a row, which was good. Um, you know, we, we our next date is Buford, Georgia, on May first, as we discussed, and I think around June there's some dates coming in. If those dates don't get pushed back to next year. Yeah. If this pandemic, you know, if things started getting better on the pandemic, you know, the vaccines work and this and that, um, I think things will get back to where they maybe they should get. Uh, I, I mean, this time last year, I don't think none of us knew what was going to happen, you know. I mean, yeah, this, this time last year, we were all just kind of like, like we were in crazy. a, like we were in a movie or something. I mean, it was it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, none of us had ever experienced anything like that. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. It was very surreal. Yeah, it was nuts. I, th- I think, man, I'm, 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 I'm going to be an optimist here. I think things will be okay. It just may take a little while, but I think things will get better. Um, as I said, we have a new album. It'll drop sometime in the fall, and I've got another side project with my stepson, John, and uh, uh and the bass player from Mighty Jeremiah, Dean Smith, uh, we're, we're going to do a, we've got a little project we're going to release somehow, do a small label or whatever. So what I did mostly last year, besides spending time with my family, I mean, I've been on the road pretty much nonstop since 1979, um, you know, playing music some one with it on a tour bus from 81 till last year. And so the break, it was good for me. I got my basement cleaned up. I got to spend time with my family and uh, put on about 20 pounds, which I got to lose. <laughs> you know, but uh, that'll happen. <laughs> well, you definitely haven't been sitting at the house twiddling your thumbs. Tell us about the lowdown hoedown radio show for the last 25 years. I've what? been doing the lowdown hoedown, actually, at WDMS Bowling Green every Monday night since uh, 19... No, hang on, they ain't right. I started doing the Lowdown Hoedown in 1997 on another station. I was there for two and a half years. Then I brought the Lowdown Hoedown to D93 in 2001. So this coming November, we'll be celebrating 20 years. Wow. Folks, y'all be sure and go and Google that Lowdown Hoedown. Greg Martin, he will... Turn you on to some blues. We didn't even get a chance to get into all that tonight. My gosh, we we've kept you a lot longer than we we've kept you a lot longer than we planned to. I hate that we've took all this time up. Um, of course, me and Chris have to go to a wedding on May first because Buford is like ten minutes from here. Oh man, or we but would we, be there. But we're gonna do everything we can to Uber Eats. Um, you a bag of White Castles. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> 
No, I got a big. I got a bigger. I don't mean to be eating White Castles, but I will. I won't turn White Castles down. I got a bigger question than that. We talked to a mutual friend that does sound for a lot of stuff, and he's actually going to be doing your show and Buford Tweak, who's been a uh, guest on our show. And I said, Tweak, we're having Greg Martin on the show. He said, Oh my gosh. I said, What do I need to ask him? He goes, Ask him about his affinity for bologna sandwiches. <laughs> I like bologna sandwiches. <laughs> I think everybody in the headhunters like yeah. bologna sandwiches. He said him and Richard him and Richard eat more bologna sandwiches than anybody I know of. <laughs> we love it, man. We need to start eating. Yeah, we need to be out exercising more, I think, a little bit. Maybe it'll happen. You got to do that fried. Remember, if you're going to fry it, you got to slice that hole in it where it won't pop up on you when you're frying that bologna. Right on. You got that right, man. You got that right. You got that right. Buddy, we appreciate you so much joining us tonight. Oh, man, thank you guys. And I think that everybody just keep praying, keep loving each other, quit fighting about stuff we can't change, and just... uh, and I think that if you put everything under the umbrella of love, it's all going to be okay, man. Everything will be all right. Amen, brother. We're going to go out, folks, with some uh, mighty Jeremiah's "Walk with Me, Jesus," and we might yeah, just baby. and we I'm might gonna, we I'm might just on court. Five minutes yeah. outside. <laughs> thank you for playing. Yeah, and we're going we're going to encore that with uh, "Spirit in the Sky" and just just everybody going to get happy tonight. How about that? Right on, brother. <laughs> all right. <laughs> thank you so much, Greg. We'll. Uh, We'll um we'll hopefully we'll get out there and be able to see you next time you're uh, next time you're in Georgia. Unfortunately, Cal and I we do have that wedding on May first, or I can assure you we would we'll be, be there, there yes, exactly bugging the fool out of Tweak and uh, and watching that gig. Yeah. Well, come come see us, man. We'll see you guys real soon, but folks. And May first. Steve, bring out the rattlesnakes, too, okay? There you go. All right, producer Steve, son, it's been too long. Let's take it to the house tonight with a little Mighty Jeremiah's and Kentucky Headhunters. Folks, you've been listening to The Crossing, where the music meets the memories. We will catch you again on the next episode. Peace out.
The Crossing, where music meets memories, is recorded at Due South Productions, high atop the northeast tower of Pete's Castle in South Coal Mountain, Georgia, and is recorded and mixed by Steve Thomason, hosted by Coal Mountain Cal Hurd and Chris Cheatham. Theme music, written, performed, and recorded by Wendell Cox. The Crossing is a production of Roadhog Music and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Due South Productions or at least a text message from Coal Mountain Cal's Razor Phone. That'll work too. All rights reserved. All right, we'll catch you next time right here on The Crossing.